All right, family, welcome to another episode of Studio B. I am your host, Marcus D. Holman, and today, 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 we have an exciting guest with us, um, one that has visited us before and his story just resonated within me. So we asked him to come back and sit down at the table and talk about some real issues that are going on right now. I want to introduce to all Dr. Cortland Wycliffe. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for joining the table here at Studio B, man. How you doing today? Uh, doing pretty good. How about yourself? Life is good. I think I need to kind of explain why I'm excited to have you on the show today. Um, Dr. Wycliffe is a Ph.D. Well, let me start from the beginning. Graduated Rice University right here in Houston, Texas at the age of 19 years old. And what did you get your degree in at that time? Uh, bioengineering. And at the time that he got his degree at 19, he was the youngest engineer in the state of Texas. Am I correct? Uh, in the nation. In the nation. In the nation at 19 years old, graduating Rice University. And then upon graduating from Rice University, he furthered his education and went to Harvard University, where he got his degree in law at 22 years old. Yes, sir. And at that time, when you got your degree in law, you were the youngest. Uh, so it was actually when I passed the bar uh, a few months later, I became the youngest licensed attorney in Texas. So he became the youngest licensed attorney in Texas. So if you keep in track with me, graduated from Rice, then went on to graduate from Harvard University. He wasn't finished there, came back down here to Texas and then went to Texas A&M, where you earned your Ph.D. at the age of 25. In what field? Uh, interdisciplinary engineering. OK, so let's hear this, y'all. Graduated Rice at 19, graduated Harvard at 22, graduated Texas A&M at 25 years old. Now, when you came here a couple of months ago, you said that one of the things that drove you was that Dr. Martin Luther King got his Ph.D. at 26. And you had tried to make it your goal to get your Ph.D. before his. And you did accomplish that, correct? Yes. So we have a very, very exciting show here today because this is one of the things that I've been very uh, passionate about in regards to what's going on in our nation. Uh, obviously, right now, we are in a very uh, vicarious position. Uh, just even today, right down the street from our ministry, uh, the funeral of Brother George Floyd is going on. And of course, this has been a very polarizing incident that has happened in American landscape. And it has caused America to go into some very deep and some very uh, uncomfortable discussions. Uh, kind of give me your view, your expectations of what you're looking at right now. How do you see what's going on? Um, so... Right now, I see this as the shock to the system. And the question is going to be whether now that the system is shocked, we turn back to business as usual, uh, make a few donations, have a couple marches, nothing really changes in the long term, or whether this is going to be enough of a disruption that it takes us into a new rhythm and a new way of doing things. And right now, I think that um, when you look at the, the civil rights movement. Uh, you brought up Dr. King. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we've made in the way that we articulate the civil rights movement is we treat it as in 1960, this guy got an idea. He got together with some of his friends. They marched on Washington. Then we got voters' rights. And that's how we teach the civil rights movement. Yeah. We don't teach it as a continuous effort starting uh, basically from the before the abolition of slavery. So you're talking about something that started in the 1800s and has been continuously worked towards with court decisions, with marches, with protests, with the Civil War. Uh, all these different things through World War II, through the, the thing that we call the Civil Rights Movement, through to modern day today. And it's not that there was any one person or any one thing that managed to make this huge victory that instantaneously changed everything overnight. It's that everybody treated the Civil Rights Movement as we treat the church. We're all different members of the body of Christ. We all have different spiritual gifts and everybody used their spiritual gift, whether it was being somebody who you are a star athlete and you use the podium of mm -hmm. getting metal to make a statement or you used your access because you are an entertainer to change the hearts and minds of people or whether you are a lawyer in the courtroom or a minister from the pulpit, we all have spiritual gifts even right down to the Montgomery bus boycott that was individuals who they might have had nothing else to contribute other than the fact that they were willing to put on their walking shoes. Mm -hmm. And so we have to decide 
whether we're going to let this be a minor disruption on the way to business as usual, or we're going to allow this to be a, a systemic change. Because keep in mind, as horrible as the the George Floyd video wasn't as horrible as his murder was, and let's be clear, it was a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen worse. Yeah. And it's an unfortunate thing to say, but his, and I know this might be morbid to say, but his casket is going to get to be open. Mm. Uh, Emmett Till, yeah, we had an open casket, but that was at the behest of the mother against a whole lot of other people's opposition. Uh, The person who got dragged behind the truck Mm. uh, in, in East Texas, that wasn't an open casket. We have seen some extraordinarily gruesome things right down to seeing a 12 year old murdered on police cam. And so this isn't the first time and we have to decide whether we're going to proactively try to make this the last time, because since that murder has happened, we have seen additional cases of police brutality. We've seen the White House even order troops to tear grass uh, protesters violating the, the uh, their First Amendment rights. And this can, so for everybody who's thinking that because this happened and because everybody is supportive of this right now, keep in mind, people have been all behind black the progression of black people's rights and the progression of the disenfranchised in previous times in our history. It doesn't change the fact that you can have a regression if you get complacent. So you speak to something very uh, powerful here, Doc. And and so our topic today is kind of like what's next. Mm -hmm. Okay, after the riots have ceased, after the fires have been put out, after the emotions have been subsided, what's next? And I think one of the things that Dr. King showed us uh, through his absolutely, and I think people forget the fact that God used the Baptist minister to institute uh, the civil rights movement. But when you're looking at his protests, when you're looking at his marches, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was not one that just marched for the sake of marching. There was always an agenda behind the march. Uh, So he always had a plan and something that he was bringing to the table that he wanted to change. And so now that we see all the melee going on, not just in America, but virtually around the world, the question is, after it's all said and done, when the funeral is done and Brother Floyd has been committed to the grave, as he will today, what's going to happen? What is the benefit of all the riots? What is the benefit of all the protests? It's wonderful to go and do that. But what do we do now? And one of the reasons why I want to have you on here, because I'm a big proponent in the education of the person. Mm -hmm that we have to educate ourselves so that we can know how to do better. And so what's the next step in your mind in regards to this social movement that we see going on right now? Um, So definitely I agree that we need to make sure that we're all educating ourselves and we need to make sure we're all uh, raising our level of understanding. The thing that I want to caution is not necessarily saying that everybody needs to learn the same things. And what I mean by that is I guarantee you if you swap Dr. King and Thurgood Marshall, uh, you swap their positions where Dr. King's standing in a courtroom and uh, Thurgood Marshall is standing at the podium uh, all the times that Dr. King was delivering speeches, the civil rights movement has a very different outcome. Absolutely. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to figure out what that spiritual gift is and then maximize it. Right now, we don't have time for necessarily new people to get educated in a way that's going to uh, be useful in this moment. What we really need is for the people who already have that understanding and already have that expertise to step up to the table. Uh, The fact of the matter is, with a lot of these protests, there isn't accompanying demands. Every time that there was a protest to be had in the civil rights movement, there was a very specific ask. Absolutely. Um, we can't say that we want to end to police brutality. How do you end something like that? I mean, the, the line between policing and police brutality can get very fuzzy. Mm-hmm. At the borders, you need to have something that says we want to see a bright line drawn where if you step across this line, this is a problem and here's how we're going to handle that. Well, how do we do that? I mean, you could have people who are uh, psychologists and sociologists step to the table and say, well, here are some of the reasons why this is occurring. Here's some things that would help. The fact of the matter is that our police departments, they're not given training on how to de-escalate situations in a very substantive way. If you look at the uh, amount of that sociology, that psychology training that they get, it's not enough. Um, If you look at 
one of the major issues being that when a police officer has an incident in one district, they get to move to another. Well, then it comes to people like me who are very interested and very well versed on policy to say things like we have a national database for almost every crime you could commit. There's a national sex offender registry. There's a, a national database when you're looking up people's felonies. Why is there not a national da database for police brutality or incidents mm. of police misconduct? There is no one place that if you're vetting a potential hiree that you can go to and see that this person had incidences of misconduct in their PD when, that they're coming from. And you're relying on you to be able to pick up the phone and call those that, that PD and they give you an honest assessment. What if you're talking to one of their friends? And let me put it differently. If you were going to go interview for a job, would it be acceptable for them not to be able to run any type of background check yeah, on you? Absolutely. And so something as basic as a national database. Now we stop having the whole, oh, when I get in trouble, and we're not just talking about issues of police brutality. When I get in trouble for drugs, when I get in trouble for any number of misconduct or crime, I just to get to pick up and leave before the heat comes down. And nobody asks any questions. That's unacceptable. You know, you look at policymakers looking at how are we going to recategorize police brutality? There is no reason why a police officer should be charged under the same statutes that a regular citizen is. The burdens of proof are, are drastically different. The expectations, the, the expertise, for example, if the heavyweight champion punches somebody in the face, that's a very different crime than if I punch somebody yeah, exactly. in the face. Come on. Because that is somebody who's trained, that is somebody who is experienced, and that's a different level of danger. And in a lot of respects, we need a federalized police brutality statute that makes it to where we're not always having to rely on a local uh, district attorney's office who they have to work with these people. I mean, it's not really a fair expectation for us to say the coworkers that you need to put away dangerous criminals and you need to enforce laws in your community if they step out of line, you're the only one that we can turn to to, to wrangle the, them in. That's not really a fair burden for those people. Mm -hmm. There should be federal statutes. And that's something that I can say because I'm looking at it from a legal perspective. I don't even know all of the potential things that an economist might say would improve. The fact of the matter is, you have if you have issues of poverty, you have issues of classism, you have issues of implicit bias, those are all things outside of my expertise, but I know that we can look to those experts that are out there right now and they can use that spiritual gift that they have honed and that, that expertise that they can apply to really think of what that change looks like in the future so we can not only just have these uh, protests going on, we can have protests accompanied with demands. So in that, um, there's a, a great need that, that I see arising. Um, Dr. Wickler, we are, uh, have arrived right now with the death of George Floyd. And for whatever reason, God has used this particular death. He is not the only one, and dare I even say, he will not be the last. But God has used this particular death to give what we're trying to fight for a global platform. And I am very, very concerned about what we do in this moment because I don't know if that platform is going to come back around. So I believe that this is a very pivotal moment in our time, in our culture, and for the soul of this nation. And I've, I say that very uh, respectfully. When you're looking at this whole issue with George Floyd, uh, we know that Officer Chauvin was a 20-year police veteran. We know that two of the other three gentlemen that were there were rookies on the force, had been on the force for about a week. And that Officer Chauvin, uh, Chauvin was the training officer. So when you're looking at a systemic racism problem, you have a 20-year police veteran who is training two brand new officers about how to interact with the public. And by putting his knee on Brother Floyd's neck, he was training these other two officers about how to police the community. And so when you're talking about systemic issues, you look at how Brother Chauvin or Officer Chauvin was trained. He was simply retraining how he was trained. And so the, the paradigm continues to move forward. When you talk about the police trying to police themselves, that's the Wolf Garden Hen House. So there new needs to be some type of outside influence. And when we come to the table to say, look, this is not working. This is not working. Here's what we propose. And I'm asking you, um, because you come from a background, 
what was the motivating force for you to kind of push through some of the issues and struggles that you had? Because I do believe that education raises the, uh, raises the consciousness. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely believe that. And I do believe that when we know more, we can do more. And, and it's, it's very, very disingenuous to try to hold somebody to a standard that they don't know that the standard exists. So my question to you is, as we are looking at what's going on, what are the next progressive real steps? You got people talking about defunding and dismantling the police department. Okay, uh, Dr. Wiffle, with all due respect, I mean, when we're going to come to the table, can we come to the table with some solutions that are at least manageable and reasonable? What's mm-hmm. some of your ideas um, about how to move the paradigm forward? How do, how do we move the needle? Uh, first and foremost, um, and I say this with all respect, uh, not trying to be derogatory or put anybody down, there needs to be a uh, an acknowledgement of what your lane is. And I think that a lot of times people deem their popularity or their success as a license to, you know, drift into the lane of saying they have expertise that they don't have. Even in this conversation, uh, and it's, it's not just about your talking about people who are uneducated, even educated people. Mm-hmm. So the idea that when we were just talking, I said my expertise is not as an economist, it's not as a psychologist, it's not as a sociologist. I can't speak to what the solutions are in that those arenas. That in and of itself is a first step. Mm-hmm acknowledging where you need help at and then going out to go seek that help. So, you know, I by all means would love to sit at the table with some people who are talking about proposing policy and what's going to happen is or what should happen whenever you're sitting at one of those tables, understand the things that you don't know and start asking questions. A lot of times we're, we're creating the unfair scenario where we're demanding that people who they, they haven't studied these problems come up with solutions on the spot it, it isn't the job of the people mobilizing these movements to have to always come up with solutions. Keep in mind, just like the civil rights movement had uh, many different parts there, the people who were called to create the moral conviction, there were the people who were called to uh, create the energy, and there were the people that were called to create the ideas. We all need to figure out where our spot is and then go find those other people that can help us on that journey. Well, that's a great word. I think one of the biggest issues we continuously see are that when you're looking for that that voice at the table, you're not going to the expertise. Something that just completely has annoyed me, even when I was younger, was there's always this call for that one young voice, which is already insulting that it's only one young voice because, you know, looking at the, the demographics and the population, the fact that we only get that one voice. But when they go look for that voice, they never go look at the people who are experts in the field. You know, at, when you start talking about millennials, you're talking about people who are between the ages of what, uh, 25 and and. 40 right now, mm-hmm. you have legitimate professors at, at major institutions, you have thought experts, you have business leaders, all of these exist in that millennial demographic, but instead of going to those people who are informed, a lot of times they just go to who's popular, mm-hmm. and they put the entire weight of our generation on one person and then say that we're not willing to be informed or active or whatever based on the word of that one person. I will unequivocally say, I'll even look into the camera and say, <laughs> if you're looking for a millennial voice... <laughs> If you're looking for somebody who is not going to be afraid to sit on a panel with a whole bunch of living legends and call them to to question and hold them accountable, um, you can you can reach out to Dr. Cortland uh, J. Wycliffe, Esquire. I'm easy to find. All you have to do is spell C-O-R-T-L-A-N in Google, and I will be the first one that pops up. Feel free to send me an email anytime because I am sick of seeing that the the energy of our generation, the commitment of our generation is constantly being misrepresented because we we get a lot of times represented by people who are parroting what they think that they saw in the civil rights movement. It's almost like the little sibling that used to try to emulate what you did and it, it was never quite right because they didn't understand the foundation. Uh, we have a lot of people trying to emulate what they think Dr. King was about or what they think Malcolm X was about or what they think all of these civil rights leaders did and what they were about rather than really taking a deep dive into what 
they actually did behind the scenes because in order for the March on Washington to take place, that wasn't just somebody standing at a podium making a speech, mm. keeping in mind that the version of the speech that we see is a small fraction of the total speech. That was some people submitting permits. That were some people organizing buses. That was some people organizing foot traffic. That were some people going out to individual churches in the community and around the country and saying, hey, we're going to do this thing in a month's time or two months time. There were a whole lot of moving components. And it's not about the speech. It's not about the person who gets to get written down in history. When Martin Luther King was making that speech, he didn't know that he was going to be the person who was written about in history because he had a lot of contemporaries who were doing comparable work. And so we definitely need to stop chasing the likes, the, the retweets, mm. the shares, and we need to start chasing the change. Uh, something, you know, kind of similar to that topic is I, I don't care if somebody agrees with my opinion. I care if they're doing what I need them to do for my people and my community. You don't have to agree that, you know, police brutality is uh, caused by systemic racism or by the fact that a lot of our PT, PDs arise out of a history of slave catchers and the like. You don't have to agree that systemic racism is keeping black people down despite the statistics and despite the overwhelming history. You don't have to agree with any of my opinions on race as long as I get you to vote where I need you to vote or I get you to support the cause I need you to support uh, for. For me, when I'm talking to some of my students and some of my mentees, I tell them most of the time you will find that what's right to do is actually very profitable and actually makes really good money. And so if I don't need you to be convinced that it's the right thing to do, I'll convince you that it's the most profitable thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. Case in point, how many billions of dollars are people losing based on these protests happening? And I'm not even talking about the destruction of property because I'm, I'm dis detangling the, the looters from the protests. Um, because those, in, in my estimation, especially when you look at the 60,000 people that gathered in, in Houston downtown without incident happening and the, the citizens who were policing other citizens, I understand that protests are different than rioters. So I'm talking about the protests because understand that when people are out protesting, they're not buying. They're, they're not taking road trips and spending gas. They're not out there, you know, feeling good and having fun. All of that stuff makes money for other people. So anytime you have millions of people internationally protesting, somebody's losing some money. Let me go find out who that somebody is and let's make a value proposition that if you support police reform, then I can, I, I'll make sure that this doesn't happen in your business anymore. Because I guarantee you, if we were to do some looking around, we could find a lot of major companies who have seen a decrease in their expected revenue. Because in a lot of respects, people are, they now feel like they've navigated COVID. You know, we walk around with our masks, we have our hand sanitizer, both of which I have with me right now. They're feeling comfortable going out, but they're not going out to buy, they're going out to protest. Mm. And so, Everything from the environment to police brutality to equality to uh, uh, women's rights, all of these things, I don't need to convince you to do the right thing. I'll just convince you to do the profitable thing. And I think that comes from a perspective of I stay in my lane of knowing my expertise. And my expertise is I can break down uh, technical things for non-technical people in a way that gets them seeing things from my vantage point. And I'm not going to worry about, I'm not a history buff. If you start asking me dates of when things happened, I am not going to be able to tell you. I forget people's names all the time. But the thing that I am good at is understanding uh, systems, because that's basically what my PhD is in, uh, whether that's corporate systems, organizations, countries, and understanding how policy impacts things. Those are the two things that I, I pride myself on being uh, uh, somewhat of an expert on and I'll stick in my lane and be able to make those points and all of us have that lane that we can occupy whether it's a lane in the church whether it's a lane in policy and politics whether it's a lane and you can uh, use your business platform as a restaurant owner to really change society but the two things we have to do is one, identify what our personal lane is and then recognize when we need to go find somebody else. And I think a lot of people uh, from previous generations, when they start putting together these panels, they don't want to go find those millennials and those younger people who can actually bring that expertise to the table. They're just going and finding who's popular at the time. And I don't think that that's fair because when you're calling 
other people from your generation to the table, you're actually looking for those subject matter experts uh, in a way that you don't do in our generation. But there is this move, this 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 chant right now that is just permeating through all news stations that we need to defund the police department. We need to dismantle it, shut it down. Um, you being in the legal profession and have studied law, give me your uh, views on that sentiment. I think that that is a knee-jerk reaction um, that ultimately would be bad for our society as a whole. Uh, being very candid, I, and make no mistake, I do fully understand um, the issues that exist in the PD or different PDs around the, the country, right down to you know, having a cousin who got shot on his uh, parents' doorstep because a police officer was uh, hemming up his mom and he was trying to tell, they were all trying to convey to them that this is their house, this is their car, but the police didn't want to listen. Or me having, when part of the reason why I stopped driving a BMW, which I like the speed, I like the way it curved the, the roads. I kept noticing police officers trying to run my license plate to see if my car was stolen. Mm. Like, so I understand that there are a lot of systemic issues, but we don't want to try to solve one problem and create a, a plethora of other problems because the PDs in our community, they do valuable work. And to be clear, I do not believe that every police officer is bad or the majority of police officers are bad. I believe that there is a way that we can salvage um, the good that's in those uh, those departments. But we have to stop trying to put the unfair burden of policing the police on the police. Um, and I know that was a lot of police in that one sentence. But what I'm saying is, when is it fair to be called to... Uh, uh, I know we, we talk about being our brother's keepers, but when is it fair to be told that you need to punish your brother? Where the be our brother's keeper is the, the protection and, you know, keeping track of, but ultimately God is the judge. And in a lot of respects, yeah, we, we definitely should have police officers willing to call other police officers out, but it's unreasonable for you to expect that those same police officers are the ones that are going to be judge, jury, and yeah. executioner. Yeah. And so we really have to think about what does that system look like? And it needs to be some very honest assessment. I mean, for example, if you send a police officer to jail... There is a, a that is a very different experience than if you send, you know, a, a normal citizen or everyday citizen to jail because everybody in that jail is going to be gunning for that officer. Uh, maybe it comes down to studying how the military does um, when they're penalizing mm -hmm. or when they're uh, prosecuting other military personnel. They have a separate jail system. Maybe that's something that we need to consider on a federal level. We need to start asking the questions of the specific problem that we're trying to solve, what are some specific solutions? I think some new specified laws. I think having uh, the evaluation on the federal level rather than the state level. I think that having um, even maybe building some separate prisons so you don't have to worry about, you know, as soon as the police officer goes to jail, they're immediately going to be attacked or killed or something of that nature because that's not fair either. And actually thinking about what are the issues that both sides have and what can we do to bring them to the middle of a solution and it's not the the whole idea of let's do the nuclear option and just completely dismantle all the systems that are in place that that's not something reasonable that's not going to get you uh people to the table because you're basically saying let's overnight make you know hundreds of thousands yeah. or millions of people unemployed yeah Let's overnight get rid of uh, uh, benefits that have been in the community. And let me ask you, you're worried about racist police officers. If they weren't racist before, if a whole bunch of black people say, let me get all of you fired, I assure you that those same licensed gun owners are going to be quite racist <laughs> in their community. Like we have to start thinking about legitimate long term solutions rather than the knee jerk reactions of we need to get rid of the police or we need to get rid of police brutality. We need to solve police brutality. We need to solve the issues in our police department. And that isn't done by let's just completely blow it all up. That'll be like, oh man, the brakes aren't working on my car. Let me go and treat it like uh, Angela Bassett and waiting to exhale and light that thing up. Mm. You don't do that. You go and get the brakes fixed. As we do this, as we have discussions like this, um, on the bigger screen of life, 
people in your generation. How old are you now, Doc? Uh, 29. You're 29 years old, man. I remember 29. I'm 46 now. That was, seems like a long time ago. But you're at a place right now where even as you came up and you told your testimony, you could have taken the other path. What caused you to stay or to take the path that you currently took? I think that we try to, how I say, make it an all or nothing thing where we got to convince everybody of value of their life or everybody of the value of life in general. And I think that it's more about meeting people where they were. For me, before I had the ambition to pursue anything or the, the, the goals that I was setting for my life, it was as simple as my mom knowing that I like expensive food and showing me the price tag on that food and telling me I needed to get a good job so I'll be able to afford it. And every time I was wanting to slack on, you know, some of my early work or any time I was, you know, potentially getting out of line, she knew that I liked snow crabs and I liked, uh, even before I knew what it was, uh, filet mignon. And I, my dad, he had a, he, he'd go out to a butcher, bring home some really great stuff. And so I got to experience some of that early on, realized I liked it. And then the, uh, I like to call it the, the stilts of morality. You notice when you build a very large building, initially you put stilts. And so the stilts that we put around the morality of our country, a lot of times are going to be financial and what you're personally looking for from life. And, you know, I'm using that childish example of food, but when you're talking to some of the people that you want to make some of the huge systemic change, sometimes it's going to be just showing them that not doing this and not valuing this life is going to have a very significant dollar uh, consequence to them and putting that stilt around them. So then even before you value life, you can value your own personal finance. Or even before you value li life of other people, you can value your own life. If we create a situation where there is consequences for uh, taking the lives of unarmed uh, black people or unarmed people in general, that that will create stilts on, in which we can create that morality. So I, I saw a video, uh, it, was, it was something that got posted on social media where uh, a young Caucasian lady, and she looked like she was in middle school or early high school, was arguing with her parents about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I saw that as it, we only need to keep the generations who don't have that idea in line with those stilts of morality. And then the subsequent generation that are built on top of them, they already got it. And so mm -hmm. if we can just sh or put those stilts up, I think we can do a lot. And um, so that before I got personal motivation, it was my mom finding things that interest me that she knew I liked and she didn't have to convince me to like to to bring that full circle. So for when I'm talking to young people, I find out what they're into. If it's that you want nice cars, if it's that you want a nice lifestyle, I use that to formulate those stilts on, well, this is how you get it via education. And so I think that's ultimately the difference that we can make. So, so Dr. Wickliffe, you spoke about um, your mom providing uh, the stilts of morality, and that kind of takes us into a whole other issue that I believe needs to be addressed in order to kind of right some of the wrongs that we're facing right now today. Um, this is something that, unfortunately, I have to deal with as a pastor on numerous occasions. It's just kind of par for the course. Uh, you know, my mom had me when she was 16 years old. Matter of fact, it's my mom's birthday. Happy birthday to your mama today. Uh, she had me when she was 16 years old. Um, and, you know, my mom, growing up in Third Ward, growing up in the CUNY homes, uh, went through a whole lot. Uh, she wound up, you know, graduating from high school and eventually went on to the University of Houston to get her bachelor's degree in economics. So she had a force and a drive, even though life had kind of presented her with some challenges, to kind of move forward. However, on my side, um, you know, I didn't find out my dad's first name until I was 27 years old. I'm 46 now, and I still, even to this day, have only talked to him one time in my life. As much as success that I've had and as much as God has blessed me um, with having a wife and four kids, I would be remiss to say that not having a father in my home did not adversely affect me in some ways. My mom did a great job. She did the best that she possibly could. But I absolutely feel the absence of a male presence in the home. 
And so as you're looking at our community, and I, and I can't speak to other communities, but our community as a whole, uh, you talked about that it takes a village to raise a child. Um, there's a lot of issues that we need to be addressing with inside our African-American homes that are causing some of the the things that we see on the landscape of today. So just kind of speak to that in regards to how that works in your own life and how you see that working out now. It's, uh, when we were talking in between take, or the break, um, you didn't mention your mother's background. It's gonna be very hilarious uh, because my mom too got pregnant with my oldest brother when she was 15, had him when she was 16. And graduated high school, then went to U of H and majored in engineering. <laughs> so, <laughs> Look at that, Mama. See that? <laughs> and I'm going to blow your mind real quick. Uh, my mom's birthday is next week, so happy birthday, Mom. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> so uh, I, I say I, I, I give that segue um, because the, the problems you're talking about are real. Um, and a lot of times it's not just... A lot of times people want to make it out to be a, a pure morality issue and in actuality... When you're talking about, uh, I think the statistics, it's in some places are one in three, but you know, one in five black males ending up incarcerated at some point in time in their life, a lot of those black males have children. Mm. Um, when you're talking about the, the poverty statistics, when you're talking about the lack of education statistics, there is a lot of room for our family unit to be degraded. And we could go a lot further back and talk about where, you know, some of that began with, you know, plantation owners selling off black fathers to different plantations. All of that to say, the first thing to realize is that regardless of what your home situation is, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody controls the family that they're born into. Nobody controls the circumstances in which they're raised. Ultimately, you are not defined by those circumstances. I'm not defined by the fact that my dad passed away when he when I was 10 years old. I'm not defined by the fact that, you know, ultimately my mom couldn't teach me how to shave, how to be a man. She There's a whole lot of lessons that I didn't get to learn from that male in my house. Um, but the, the thing that my mom, and I called it the most uh, janky pep talk ever, but when me and my brothers, we got of a certain age, she would sit us down and she would list off everything that had gone wrong in our life and even say, and it, maybe I might be a crappy mother on top of it. And with tears in her eyes, she would say, but life doesn't care about you little black boy and the, the trauma and the circumstances that they you've gone through the cars you're dealt are something you have to play to the best of your ability and for us as a community we have to be willing to play those cards to the best of our ability so for me uh my mom you know my dad passing away she couldn't teach me how to be a man so she would find uh people in the church or family members who were willing to deposit in me part of the reason why i'm the man i am today is because of a brother named lyric jackson who was my uh, cousin's husband and he would take time to teach me the the basics uh, that he felt like a man should know and you might not be able to or it's an unfair responsibility, but as black men, we are sometimes called to be fathers to the fatherless. Mm-hmm. We're called to lead communities when they don't have leaders, and we need to step up to that responsibility because I would be remiss if with all the education I have and with all the success I've had and with all the blessings I've been given, if I thought that it was okay for me to think that my blessing stopped at my yeah. front door. Yeah. And so we, as in the community, we have had to deal with a whole lot of things but ultimately, that village is not some mythical thing that magically forms. It's not, you know, some, some uh, I don't know, wand that's waved. It's a decision that people need to make when they're in a position to help others to help them, whether that's people in your extended family, whether that's people in your extended community, whether that's people you have never met before. And so for me, I, I, I can't advise on everything, the ins and outs of what it means to be, you know, successful in everybody's lives. But what I can do, I, I try. So for me, you know, I, I uh, told you last time I was here about uh, putting together a tour where I put up a ridiculous amount of my own money and I'm still paying off the credit card debt from that because I think it ended up coming out to me in like 50 something K that I went in the hole. But it was important to me that I traveled around the entire state of Texas and talked to as many high schools, community events and colleges as I could 
thousands and thousands of kids and just delivering the message that you are enough and you are not defined by your circumstances. Here are the circumstances I went through. And if I can do it, I know you can do it. And whatever that success is for you, pursue it because it's going to look different than mine. Uh, but all of us have something we're talented in. And sometimes the issue is that we judge fish over their ability to climb mountains and we judge people off the spiritual gifts that they were never given. God intended that you have something spectacular deposited in you and you have the ability to succeed with that talent as long as you're willing to find it. And I, you know, I hate to keep coming back to this, but find your lane and run in it. I don't care if you're the fastest person on the planet. If you run it on a track and you step in somebody else's lane, you instantaneously lose the race. And so run your race to the best of your ability and don't worry about what's going on around you. And I think that ultimately those two components of each of us making the individual decision to step up, whether that's in our household, in our communities, in the movement, and each of us individually finding uh, what is our uh, big motivation, what is our big goal, what is our big dream, what is our spiritual gift, and applying that. Those two things combined create a, a perpetual village because as the village raises me, I become a member of somebody else's village to raise them. So, Don, man, this is <laughs> good stuff, man. Let me, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is I think we had you over here maybe about six months ago to talk about um, we were talking about sex trafficking. We were talking about the importance of school. And then when I learned about your history and did some research on you, um, I am a big proponent. Um, I believe that um, we are stereotyped. We are portrayed a lot of times as victims. Um, they take, as you said previously, the person with not the kind of experience that needs to be speaking on behalf of an entire generation. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on Studio B podcast is because I do want to uplift um, the successes of our people and and to show the younger generation, not even just the younger generation, but just people in general, that good decisions can bring forth positive outcomes and that you may be dealt with a certain hand in life that you didn't have anything to do with. However, your your decisions based on that hand can make all the difference in the mm -hmm. world. And I think this is important because as we look at, and I'm just biased here, so the rich history of our people and the overwhelming circumstances that our ancestors had to overcome, and though that blood that is running course through our veins gives us the opportunity to do whatever we want to do. If we come together, as you said, and put our collective brain power together, we can really do some phenomenal work. And so as you're looking at these cameras, as you're talking, um, encourage that person that says, you know what, hey, I'm, I, I, this is where I was born. I don't really see any encouragement. Uh, I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm, I'm mad. Um, and and I, I don't really see that particular path that you have just laid out. Just encourage some people right now who may be feeling like that. Um, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Um, I, I began with that quote because ultimately, if you look at every person in history that has done something exceptional, and we're in church, you look at every person in the Bible who has done something exceptional, it wasn't innate uh, that they, or it wasn't certain that when they were born, they were going to do that. And some people have been born into better circumstances. Some people have been born into worse. But ultimately, you are, we're all born the same way, kicking and screaming. And what I say to people is, if you find what you are ordained to do, if you find what that, that contribution you're supposed to make is, everything is going to come far more naturally. Uh, for me, there's nothing about my life at the onset that seems like I should have ended up where I, I'm currently at. Um, 
the the single parent household statistics you know we could talk about those the uh coming from below the poverty line because once my dad passed away we went uh i, I not so jokingly say uh, my mom had quit her job to go back to school right before my dad passed away and so we went from a two parent or two income household to a no income household essentially overnight the fact that my parents they actually did get divorced they remain really great friends they're their divorce was probably uh, one of the best relationships I've seen anybody had. And they were, you know, really close and whatnot. But you can look at all of the different statistics associated with that and throw on a black male. And I'm not supposed to be successful. I'm not mm-hmm. supposed to be sitting here. Mm-hmm. The things that you overcome as especially a black person in America our next level. A lot of times we don't internalize how much the deck is stacked against us. And it's not something where it's a woe is me or I'm saying that anybody should curl up in a ball. I'm saying that you going to school, you are far more likely to be sent to detention than to have uh, uh, learning disabilities like dyslexia or ADD uh, diagnosed in you. You are far more likely to be ignored or to be penalized by your teachers. You're far more likely to have your your uh, assignments graded more harshly. These are not things that I'm saying because of just my personal experience. You can go and look up the studies mm-hmm. to support that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we are, um, I, I say that it, it's sometimes more difficult today than it was when there were actual uh, systems that everybody knew were in place that were to keep you down because now we're telling kids that you have no reason to not be successful and that's the message that a lot of time we're delivered. And it's like, but I, I feel like this so much harder yeah, than for yeah, me. Yeah. And so there's that also that mental strain of the American dream is right here. Just grab it as you're shackled to the table. Yeah. And so there's so much against you. And so just being here, being alive, you've already accomplished so much and so much greater is within you than just surviving. I don't know what each individual person, their their dreams are, what their skills are, but I know that everybody has in them a talent, something that they do better than other people. And if they would embrace that talent, and I know it's more difficult, I can't tell you, you know, with all the education and things like that that I've gone through, I still had, I was about to be the youngest engineer in the nation at 19. I still had uh, my pre-law advisor tell me that I couldn't get into the schools that I got into. He told me I was aiming too high. I've had those experiences starting in elementary school, going all the way to my PhD, having one of my advisors basically just tell me that my research, uh, he, he didn't think that I'd be successful in doing it. That's something that I've continually faced and I'm, I'm not saying that because look at me, look how great I am. I'm saying that because even despite all of those accolades, that's something I'm still dealing with. Mm-hmm. So I know that all of you out there, you're struggling with this. And I just want to say we're with you and you can do it. So, so Dr. Wycliffe, this has been um, an absolutely phenomenal conversation and, and I pray that even as what we do here at Studio B, we do bold balance, but uh, information and podcasts that affects people everyday lives. Um, everything has a biblical foundation going back to what God has said. And so I want to just kind of just kind of curtail that to that last part of your conversation. Uh, God has a purpose for us all. And um, if you can get past the right now to see the future, it's bright. Uh, but we would also be very naive to say that there are not challenges that are presented before each and every last one of us. And I often tell people, you see the glory, but you don't know the story. So you mm-hmm. don't know what a person had to go through in order to get to where they are. But when you understand the value of that story, it makes the glory that much more glorious. And as we look at our ancestors who have blazed the trail for us, um, it's not that they were not without struggle. It's not that even as you look at Dr. Martin Luther King, who is by far, and I've said this on many of occasions as I've studied his life in detail, he spent many a lonely nights questioning, is this worth it? Am I really doing it? Is it really making a difference? Uh, he spent many a nights uh, in his prayer closet calling out to God. Uh, One of his favorite verses was 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because many times, the Dr. Martin Luther King 
felt as though his work was not progressing. And so I want to encourage everybody and just your story um, as a young black male who had to overcome several challenges. I believe that you are an inspiration um, to many people and even those who are watching right now. I want them to take some encouragement from your life, even encouragement from mine and everybody who is watching that greatness is within you and you can do extraordinary things. You come from a royal lineage and we are sometimes our worst enemy. And so I want you to kind of speak as you, as we wrap this up with regards to the social movement that we're in right now, the what's next. You talked about bringing certain skill sets to the table. What would you tell to that person right now who is frustrated, Dr. Dr. Wycliffe? They are frustrated. Um, do you want me to talk to the camera? Talk to the yeah. camera. All right. Three minutes. Um, I understand your frustration. I understand your anger. And to be clear, you are living in an unprecedented time because this is no longer an issue of Republican or Democrat, left, right, liberal, conservative. This is an issue of right and wrong and morality. There is no gray areas in this. And so the if you're right now watching this, then that means you're either on a computer, you're on your phone. And so I want to encourage you right now, go fill out your U.S. census. That's something that you can immediately do right now that increases the uh, representation from your community. It is going to be paramount because in most states in the country, they're going to be doing redistricting and you need yourself to be counted to have make sure that your community has a voice. And it's going to be the basis of the allocation of funding potentially for the next 10 years. So do that right now. Uh, Go Google U.S. Census 2020, whatever. Uh, Next thing is. Go and vote. Um, I know that, you know, we talk about voting, but let's be clear. This is not, you know, the standard can vote to be heard. This is the vote to have somebody who is consistently violating morality and the U.S. Constitution um, out. And if you didn't know who I was talking about, then that's fine. If you did know who I was talking about, that's also fine. But I, I recognize I won't, you know, blatantly say, but then also understand that this election is going to decide how your district is uh, drawn up for the next 10 years. So it is important, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, uh, you want your district to be drawn in a way that is beneficial to you and your beliefs and your community and your school system, all of that. All of that's happening this year. All of that's happening in a few months. So do that. Take that anger and apply it there. Next thing up, actually go out and get involved. Mm-hmm. Don't just elect people and allow them to, to you know, uh, do whatever they want. Consistently hold them accountable. Keep this energy going. The Montgomery bus boycott lasted for over a year. So at the very least, can you keep this energy going for the next six months mm-hmm. to get to the other side of the November election and then keep it going to those inaugurations in January and this time next year? And if you do that, I believe that you can see some long term change. Keep in mind that your voice matters and whether it's on the protest lines in the ballot box or anywhere else, you can make it heard. Well, everybody, thank you for joining Studio B. Uh, Dr. Cordland Wycliffe, it has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation. Thank you for your expertise and your insight. Um, I pray that even as anybody has been watching this podcast during this time has drawn some uh, inspiration from your words. And I believe uh, that the best for us is yet to come. I do believe that there is a greater hope ahead, and I do believe that our future is bright. Uh, We want you to go ahead and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Make sure that you join YouTube. Go ahead and uh, subscribe to um, to all of our social media pages so that you will not miss one single episode from Studio B. Until next week, we'll see you soon.